0: Rockheads, hack your way out of the jungle of confusion and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 261 with guest Phil Hack, recorded live Tuesday, July 21st, 2007. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net. Training developers to work smarter. And now, bring world classnet and SharePoint training on-site to your development team. Online at www.franklins.net. And by Telerec, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. Support is also provided by Developer Express. Crafting first-class tools, frameworks, and controls for the .NET developer. Improve your experience online at www.devexpress.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who sold his Mac gave up crack, and is kicking back with some Yukon Jack, Carl Franklin.
1: Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl and Richard here for your .NET pleasure. Hi, Richard Campbell. Hello, sir. How are you? How's Vancouver? Uh, you know, summertime in Vancouver is fabulous. Speaking of uh, summertime and parties, 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 uh, this is the first time we've talked since uh, Kim Tripp's wedding. Yes. And Paul Randall's wedding. Yeah. They were both there. They were. And we had a lovely time, went on
2: a lovely boat cruise. It was a great wedding. It uh, really uh, was. And, and, and an interesting experience. Of course, most of us got married rather younger. They're, they've, uh, they're married a little later on in life. And so there's a different feel to it. It was much more relaxed. And uh,
1: all I can say, Kim, your house is awesome. Yeah. What a great place. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well anyway, uh okay. Back to reality. So uh yes. we're, we're having back a little, at work finally. We're having a little party, as you know, in Connecticut too, yeah. for my mine and my wife's fortieth birthday party. And Richard's coming out and a whole bunch of RDs are gonna be there. It's gonna be like all the gang that was out at your party and was yeah, party.
2: We all partied in Vancouver, now we're all gonna party
1: in New London. And we'll we'll actually try to get some 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 interesting stuff I think we have some salvageable pieces from interviews we did at Kim's
2: wedding although
1: <laughs> it's let me just put it this way it's not gonna be content
2: okay uh, yeah you're gonna you're gonna get a little insight into some of the personalities you may have listened to on the show
1: yeah, we tried to get into some content and Tim Huckabee practically chewed our heads off for that you know he just wanted to have fun but anyway uh, we'll debate about how much of that we're gonna release. And how much we won't. But uh, in the meantime, let's get to better know a framework. All right.
3: Uh, It's starting to grow on me, Richard. I love it. I'm actually kind of proud of it now.
1: (laughs) Well, uh, today's framework class is actually a .NET Framework 3.0 namespace. And uh, just to let you know that it's there, because I came across it in the list a couple of times, and I'm like, oh, that's interesting. It's system.windows.input. And this provides classes to support the WPF input system. Now, that means keyboard, mouse, whatever. They leave it open, input. Notice they don't say mouse and keyboard. Right. Because who knows? You know, it's everything. So they have uh, classes like a gesture manager. I think what do they have this input gesture an abstract class that uh, describes input device gestures. They have uh, input binding. They have an input manager, which is, I guess, your 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 manager class that does all the you know heavy lifting. They've got uh, keyboard navigation uh, modifiers, a mouse class that represents a mouse device to a specific thread. So there's a lot of low-level stuff here. I'm, I'm not sure, because I'm not into WPF that much yet, like how much of this you're going to be hitting directly. Um, you, you know, the whole idea of having uh, abstract classes around UI is to sort of make all the low-level stuff go away. But I guess sometimes, you know, you need to dig down. Who knows? Well, anyway, as we get more educated about WPF, we'll probably look back on this little, you know, naive look at system... Uh, Windows input and laugh at ourselves. It's, you're going to be more in there, I'm sure. Yeah, but, but you know, I just want to make you sure uh, aware that it's there, and that's the whole purpose of BetterNo framework. System. Excellent. Windows. Input. All
2: right, Richard, uh, lay on me an email. All right. Are we ready for this? Yeah. Uh, this email is from uh, Tim Draid. Oh yeah, hi I like guys. This one. This show was fantastic, and he's talking about the Sean Wildermuth show. I really enjoyed the frank discussion on Silverlight. It reminds me of the discussions from a couple of years ago with the likes of Rocky Lock, etc. on .NET 2.0. At that time, you were warning us on how things like partial classes didn't solve all the problems related to auto-generated code in type data sets. This episode was the first real frank discussion I've heard on Silverlight, both what is good and what still needs to be fine-tuned. It is the first commentary I've heard that gave me a clearer idea of what this technology may truly provide beyond the confusing message that the Spindockers were putting on it, so keep it up. It sounds like Sean is not in favor of including data binding support in Silverlight. I think that its absence would have a huge impact on how the technology would be able to differentiate itself from Flash. Part of his argument for the use of Silverlight is that .NET developers would not have to learn a new language. If we remove the ability to interact with data in a similar fashion to the more traditional .NET apps, there would be a significant loss in carryover of programming patterns, which I think is as important as the syntax of a particular language. Heck, it's not as as important. It's more important. Yeah. Language syntax is easy. It's learning the libraries. It's learning the classes. That's the hard part. So I agree with Tim on this one. If you're used to data binding in .NET, you want to stick with that in Silverlight as well. Yeah. And Tim ends off his email with "Thanks again for all your hard work." Cheers, Tim Droud. I hope I got your name right. Anaheim, Saskatchewan. Ooh, out in the middle of nowhere. I didn't know there was an Anaheim in Saskatchewan. And your
1: father's from Saskatchewan, isn't he? Yes, he is. Hmm. Well, there you go. I don't know if you've ever – have you ever told the story on uh, – you told it on Mondays, but you didn't tell it on – I think I told it on
2: Mondays. I'm not going to tell it on (laughs) TNR. You liked that story during the party, though, didn't
1: you? Oh, Richard basically told this story of how his uh, uncle or somebody when he was a kid in Saskatchewan (laughs) took away his boredom by making him bang pots together so the prairie dogs would poke their heads up and then he'd shoot them. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Well, that's what you do in Saskatchewan. Well, bang them together, boy! (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we had too much fun that night. Yes, we did. All right, and... What else you got for me? Well,
1: uh, just that our friend Greg Brill in uh, New York City is still hiring. Right. And uh, he's hiring people in Boston, too. If you're interested in the Boston gig, uh, send an email to me, carl at franklins.net. And the New York gig, of course, uh, he's looking for people to spend a year in New York and live rent-free in Manhattan. So if you're interested in that, uh, go to shrinkster.com slash KH6. All right, Richard, let's bring on Phil. As a code junkie, Phil Hack loves to craft software. Not only does he enjoy writing software, he enjoys writing about software and software management on his blog at hacked, that's H-A-A-C-K-E-D, During his limited spare time, he leads the Subtext open source project and contributes to many other open source projects, which provides ample opportunity to write code. To put food on the table, As a, because we just talked about open source, so now let's talk about what he really does for (laughs) money. And then what you need to eat. Yeah. When he likes to eat, Phil is the product manager of coders.com. That's K-O-D-E-R-S.com. A search engine. That allows developers to search, browse, and share open source code. Phil is a Microsoft MVP for ASP.net, currently his platform of choice for building web apps, despite his love-hate relationship with it. Welcome, Phil. Hi, guys. How are you? I'm doing well. And we were just talking before uh, we started recording about how we came across you. Uh, Richard found the, ep- how I know, how do I say this? A- epon- eponymous?
4: Yeah, 19 eponymous laws of software development.
1: Right, which we've shrunk at shrinkster.com slash RDS, the 19 eponymous laws of software development. Thanks. I had never heard that uh, word before, so I went to dictionary.com, uh, shrinkster.com slash R-D-U, and looked it up, and the definition of eponymous is giving one's name to a tribe or place, et cetera. Romulus, the eponymous founder of
2: Rome. Right, and of course the point being that every one of these various laws has the name of the person who defined them, and I'd like to throw out there, as the first volley, my favorite of the 19 is Hofstetter's Law, a task always takes longer than you expect, even when you take into account Hofstetter's Law. (laughs) (laughs) Because recursive laws are better than other laws, they're just simply better. That's right. Yeah, this is good stuff. So, uh, should we read them all? Oh boy, there's a lot. I mean, 19 is a, is a ton.
1: Well, what's your that that's your favorite?
2: Right, what, without a doubt. Phil, yeah, what is your favorite?
4: Oh, that's uh that's a good question. Um you know, I kind of like uh, Sturgeon's Law. 90% of everything is crud.
3: <laughs>
1: right. <laughs> the acronym crud.
4: Right, yeah. right. Or <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I didn't thought about the acronym. Oh, really?
3: Yeah. Well, because
4: <laughs> that quote is often uh, is misconstrued as that ninety percent of everything is crap.
3: Right. Right.
4: Which is the uh, the other way it's often given. But his original one was crud, and I I, I sort of think hundred percent of everything is is crap. But it's our job to. Try to make continually make it better. Um, I was thinking of a post that uh, Jeff Atwood of codinghorror.com you know, writes about when he looks at code that he wrote five years ago and how crappy that code is compared to what he's doing now. So when you think about it, right now it's five years from, you know, before the five years into the future and everything we're, we're doing now is going to look like crap. So. Right. But uh, I think I like that one. And then I... I think I like Postel's law just because that's the one that got me to even write this
1: post. I was going to say that's my favorite. I honestly was because, first of all, it's a great law and you can read it. I'll let you read it. But John Postel is the guy. He's like Mr. RFC. He wrote all the spec for all the specs for like all of the basic protocols that we use on the internet. That's
4: right. That's right. I mean, he was the one who well, as I wrote here, the, uh, I should probably say the law. Be conservative in what you send and liberal in what you accept. Yeah. And so he articulated this as a principle for TCP, uh, to, in order to make that implementation really robust. And, uh, when you think about that, that's uh, sort of lays the groundwork for the entire internet, which uh, many of us make our entire careers off of. So sort of a debt of gratitude to, uh, Postel
2: it It really is the most defining principle of the way the internet ha- behaves. We do our very best to send the highest quality data we can, and we accept all that crap you send us every time.
1: The yes. ninety percent
4: more. Of course, it has its downsides, right? When you look at HTML and how difficult it is to get it to look right across all the different browsers. because we've accepted you know just about anything that a HTML you know script kitty can throw into a page. And uh, try to make sense of that. You know, at some point, you got to have a little bit of discipline and lay down the law. But, but on the other hand, you know, contrary to that, a lot of people say, well, if it wasn't for that, HTML would have never gained in popularity because it would have been too difficult for the masses to, you know, create their pages devoted to their kitties.
3: Yeah.
2: Yeah, the upside to being kitty tolerant is everybody gets involved, including the kiddies. Now, John exactly. Postel
1: is one of these unsung heroes of the Internet, as I was alluding to before. I, he's no longer with us. Is that right?
4: I believe that's the case.
1: Yeah, I, th- I heard that somewhere. I cannot, you know, confirm it. But two, at least two people out of the three say that's the case. So uh unless we are told otherwise. But uh I, th- I honestly think we should have a national holiday called John Postel Day. I mean, I did a lot of research into these application-level protocols for uh, some books that I wrote on the subject, and he seems to be the author of every final RFC, uh, uh, you know, on IRC, SMTP, POP3, FTP. Um, You you know, he had his hands in in everything. Do you know much about him uh, in terms of, you know, who he worked for? Was it all volunteer? No, I, I I really don't, actually. Yeah, I'd like to know more. I think I'm going to do a little research after we, after we do the show. But anyway, back to the, uh, back to the laws. Uh, it just seems that, you know, you're in that, uh, you're in that area of thinking about software, you know, much like Jeff Atwood, where, you you know, you, you really got, you really focus in on some of these core tenants and, and try to get to the fundamentals of what it's all about. And it's pretty, pretty cool. Oh, Thanks. What? Uh, what do you? Do? Let's talk about your open source work.
4: <laughs> you open up a can of worms there. Okay. Uh, I, as I often write on my blog, I love talking about it. Uh, so I started the uh, Subtext project back in uh, March of 2006. Um, well, actually, that was when I first released it and uh, Subtext is an open source blog engine it's uh, licensed under the uh, new BSD license so anyone's free to make changes to it and uh you know re-release it if they'd like and i so far it's been a lot of fun it's probably one of the most fulfilling software projects i've worked on wow. uh there's a lot of contributors who uh spend a lot of their time contributing code so in order to make it a real community project rather than you know one guy at home you know making a pro- writing code and uh, hoping others will use it
3: right is
1: so you're you're the original author of subtext
4: uh, actually no subtext is a fork of dot text which was uh, written by scott watermasses
3: right watermasses so, so, yeah,
4: DotText at the time, I think, uh, along with DOSBlog, were the two major and most well-known uh, .NET blogging engines. And then uh, Scott, uh, at the time, work sort of slowed down on dot text and I wasn't sure what was going on with it, and I had just started using it. And then uh, we heard about the community server was right. announced and how this would all get rolled into their product. So dot text was under the new b s d license, which allows for forking. It's one of the o s i approved licenses and uh the uh I mean the terms of community server are fairly generous i mean I believe that at the time they announced that they would allow people to see the source code and uh, uh, make changes on their local installations but uh you know the the problem as I saw it is that you know I wasn't sure that they were going to accept community contributions to it It, it was an unknown and not to mention that if you made if you made any changes you had to show their logo in the site. Right. And I was, you know, planning, you know, to start up a consulting firm that in some ways might be a competitor to them uh in the consulting front. So I didn't want to show their logo on my blog. I mean, I right. could have bought a license to it, but instead I decided, well, you know, I'd like to continue having community involvement. There's a lot of people who really really love this blog engine, so I announced that I was forking it, and I uh, started getting people involved. And it's been a lot of fun since then. I had no idea what I was getting into at the time, though.
3: <laughs> really? Now, if you
2: had known, would you have still done it?
4: Yes, I think I would. I think what I probably would have done is taken Daryl Basanjo's advice and not announce it until I had a 1.0 release. I ah. uh, When I announced it, I didn't have anything. I had a few changes I had made, but there was... I was just really saying, hey guys, you know, anyone want to help out? Uh, and Derek wrote me and said, you know, it's probably a good idea that if you're going to announce an open source project, have something to release, even if it's something really small, because when you can get it in the hands of people and they can play with it, then you'll get a lot more, uh, enthusiasm and and contributions. And, and something he said really struck true. He said, a hundred people out of a hundred people who might respond to you showing interest in the project, maybe 5 to 10 will actually contribute. That's true. Uh, yeah, and I, I think it's more like 3 or 4, but... <laughs> so, and that, that really was the case. We have a lot of people who have uh, shown interest, but very few who've actually uh, contributed code. But the nice thing about open source is that it doesn't require that you contribute code to be a contributor to the project. Yeah. Just using it and filing bug reports, uh, giving you know the authors praise or criticism... Uh, submitting feature requests, all of that contributes to the project. So that's one thing I found um, with Subtext is that we do have a lot of contributors. Uh, the only problem for me is that you know this is all done in my spare time. So we have a, a huge list of feature requests, uh, a relatively small, you know, hopefully list of uh, bug reports, and it takes a lot of time to go through and triage them and and prioritize them and start getting these things done, but. We've had several releases, so um, you know, fr- in my book, it's been a very successful experiment.
1: So, let's talk about subtext a little bit uh, in and of itself, because this is something that we've talked about in passing on different shows. And I know Scott Hanselman's a big fan, and, uh, but on .NET Rocks, I we really haven't talked about it. It's a, it's a fork of .Text, so it's a blog engine. And, um, what, what makes it different than, let's say, the old .Text or even DOS blog, for that matter?
4: Oh. Well, from the old dot text, one of the things that uh, was probably the biggest complaint I heard and I had myself with the old dot text was how difficult it was to get that sucker installed. Uh, I'm not sure if you guys ever played around with it, but uh, nope, when you did. downloaded the code, there were four web.config files, and you had to choose the right one based on the, the right site type of site you were going to make, and you had to make sure that all these records were in the table just right for your environment. And then if you moved it from your local machine to the production machine, you know, you got to make this one update. Otherwise, uh, everything's going to not work. So my goal was to uh, make it as usable as possible. I wanted to make it really easy to install, and I spent a lot of time working on the installation So the first thing I did was combine all the Web.configs into a single web.config that could support all the different configurations. And then I uh, started working on a web-based, what I call a web-based installer, which is modeled after the .NET Nuke manner, which is I can X-copy the code to a web server, uh, make sure that the web.config connection string is pointing to my database, and temporarily give uh, DBO permissions to the database and when you hit the site, it will uh, go ahead and install the tables and and store procedures into the database. So oh, cool. it runs you through the process. You fill in some info. It installs the database, and then ideally, then you would uh, remove DBO permissions. And uh, that I think made it a lot easier for people to set up. And that was one of the things that mo- people most appreciated. Initially, initially, I was going to make uh, Subtext a single single blog engine, so that, you know, you, one installation equals one blog, uh, cause I thought that would really simplify the code base for me. And, uh, it turned out that a lot, of, I got a lot of pushback on that. Some people were, uh, loved that idea, but a lot of people pushed back because they were hosting little communities and they wanted to continue using, uh, the, sort of the dot text line of blogs. And others, you know, wanted to host their, uh, mom's blog and their own blog on their same installation. So, that was that was one of the first uh capitulations to the community I made and uh it I I now I feel like it's ended up being a good choice, but uh it's also uh ended up being probably the, the biggest source of complexity in in, in supporting and implementing subtexts, keeping that keeping the multi-block support, which is already in text, but yeah. in a way where I only have one web.config and 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 it's really simple to set up.
1: New York never sleeps. So why should you? Introducing Sleepless in New York, the ultimate SharePoint weekend, September 7th through 9th in New York City. Infusion Development, world-class Wall Street technology consultants and published SharePoint book authors wants to fly you to New York City free for the ultimate training weekend. They'll even put you up at a first-class hotel, though you probably won't see much of it. For two days and nights, you'll live SharePoint and Silverlight with training, collaboration, and even competition. You'll participate in Lab Offs, which will test your speed and skills, ultimately deciding who moves on to the big mystery game show. The winner will receive Insomniac, the developer's computer that never sleeps. And trust me, it's awesome. You'll also be busy trading ideas with Microsoft MVPs and rubbing shoulders with Richard and me. Hey, if knowledge is power, we just offered you the mothership. Think you got what it takes? Apply now at infusion.com slash sleepless in NY. The deadline is Tuesday, August 14th to apply for Sleepless in New York, the ultimate SharePoint weekend, September 7th through
2: 9th in New York City. It's an interesting approach to building a blog engine, and it's distinctly a different style from DOS blog and, and the, even the direction that community server has gone in now. You've, you've really created a, a unique feel to the way your engine works for, for what is fundamentally a fairly simple concept of being able to post articles chronologically.
4: <laughs> yeah, so the, yeah, you mentioned DOS blog. Uh, one of the key differences with DOS blog is that we do use a SQL server uh, back in, Backend database, whereas DOSBlog stores its data uh, on XML files. Now, that has its advantages because it's really easy to deploy DOSBlog. You just X-copy it over. Uh, the downside is once you get to a certain size, you know, right. it, it becomes uh, untenable. Yes. And, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, has been a lot of fun with subtext is that, you know, I don't see these these various blog engines being a, a zero-sum game, you know. So now we have blogengine.net, uh, DOS blog subtext, and uh, you know d- Scott and I, you know, have become friends through uh, blogging and whatnot, and we share a lot of code between between the two blog engines. So I wrote, I pretty much wrote their Akismet support, which is used for filtering spam. Akismet k- I-
2: saved my life, man. <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. Akismet <laughs> saved my life. I swear. I mean, comments. Well, the, I mean, the whole blogging community has been inundated with spam in whatever form that may be, whether it's pingbacks or trackbacks or, or comment spam. It's, it's
1: horrible. Can you tell me a little bit about Kismet? I haven't heard of this.
4: Okay. A Kismet is a service, uh, started by, I believe, Matt Mullenweg, or the WordPress guy. And, uh, it's a web service, and you simply, uh, Send your, you know, the comment to them. They do whatever analysis on their side, and I'm not really sure if they're doing anything like Bayesian or if it's simply a, you know, blacklist. And then they send you a, you know, yay or nay, effectively. And and it's been, it's been really effective at uh, blocking comments, although not 100%. But here's the interesting thing, you know, the the comment spammers that are hitting blogs like mine and you know, possibly yours are not the most sophisticated guys, S- sophisticated uh, you know, hackers out there, right? No. Um, the sophisticated no. hackers are, are going to uh, Ticketmaster and trying to break that CAPTCHA. The guys that are hitting our blogs with the comment spam, um, I don't know if you've read my post on invisible CAPTCHA. No. Okay, invisible CAPTCHA has pretty much blocked all comment spam. Now, it, it doesn't affect trackback spam or pingback spam, but the way it works is really simple. Uh, it's a validator control, so you just drop it on a page, point it to a text box, and what it does is it uses uh, JavaScript to hide a div. And in that div, there's a little math question, say, you know, add 5 plus 7. And so if JavaScript is enabled, it hides that div, and and it fills in the input with the answer. So then when you hit submit, you know, it posts the answer, we validate that answer, And we say, okay, you know, you're a human. But if you don't have JavaScript enabled, you actually see the question and you need to manually type in the answer. So what happens is when a bot is, you know, trying to post a comment on your page, it doesn't know how to answer that question because JavaScript's disabled. You know, the bot doesn't evaluate the JavaScript and it doesn't even know that there's really a question to answer. So then it's unable to post the comment in a valid manner.
2: That's clever.
4: Thank you.
2: That's a very clever solution. And of course, it totally it's it, it counts on the one thing that people have that bots don't have eyes. Right.
4: The ability to do a simple math problem. Well, the ability to read and understand a simple math problem, yeah, right? The, well
2: the difference between really actually reading and uh, and just uh you know the simple parsing mechanism. So but so uh, granted the visible capture works and it's very clever. Why bother with a Kismet?
4: Well, the, Akismet handles the trackbacks and pingbacks. That's pretty much all I use it for at this point. So, so when you think about it, a trackback or a pingback is a computer talking to another computer to post a comment, right? So your CAPTCHA is not going to work there because, you know, the whole point is that you do want to allow this computer to make this communication. So, uh, Akismet is, you know, behind the scenes, the server side, right? Whereas Invisible CAPTCHA is going to work on the comment, uh, on the, Comment form in in the HTML page. So you know a lot of people you know build these really challenging captcha visual visual captcha controls for their comment forms, and yeah, some of them are just really a pain in the ass. Excuse me, a pain to uh, to enter. Oh no,
2: they're a pain in the ass. They are a huge pain in the
1: ass.
4: Okay, they're they're <laughs> pain they're a pain in the ass. And and I don't know if you've ever you know posted a comment on on Jeff Atwood's blog. His capture says the same thing every time. It's orange. Right now, if you're a script bot out there and you want to post comments automatically on on Jeff's blog, the answer is orange. Right. And and that's effectively I'm stopped sure he appreciate that. On his blog. It's <laughs> it's that simple. It doesn't need to look like Picasso's abstract art. You can tell. I feel strongly
2: about it. Yeah, I could, I could tell. But you know, and interesting that you say that you know, that Akismet's really all about ping back and track back. Because then I talked to a guy like Scott Hanselman who says pingback and trackback are dead. It's all about the aggregation engines now. It's the technoratis and the digs that are the validation or the the rating there is of a given blog post.
1: I just disabled. I mean, we use DOS blog, and I just disabled pingbacks and trackbacks. It was too much spam, but it also, yeah, I mean, I question how valuable it is.
4: Yeah, I, I I think I'm just a holdout. I mean, I started a pro- project called Subkismet, and Subkismet is <laughs> meant to be a, a library of. <laughs> I love the sub-theme, You can yeah, tell. Yeah, it's
1: got the sub-theme happening.
4: Yeah, so Subkismet is a, a library of sort of some of the comment spam techniques that I've put into uh, um, subtext, and we're trying. Tra- you know, I'm getting uh, people from the community server team involved. They're writing a like a Google Safe Browsing API. Uh, Mads Christensen, who works on blogengine.net, uh, helped, you know, write a generic abstract trackback handler. Uh, and so the goal mm-hmm. there is, you know, when I started that project, I said, you know, I was trying to make, uh, um, trackbacks and pingbacks safe for the web. So you, a lot of people like Jeff has written that you know, trackbacks and pingbacks are broken, and, you know, for the most part, I agree but I'm sort of the eternal optimist and I'm holding holding out that we can uh help you know salvage some bit of it. I think for a lot of the smaller bloggers um you know like my blog something like a kismet works well enough that uh trackbacks and pinbacks work. I think once you hit a certain so- certain amount of traffic where you know you're getting completely inundated and it and it no longer works. Uh, or your bandwidth costs you know, go too high, then, yeah, you have to turn that off. But well, uh, once
2: you, you know, if you think of the concept of a pingback, once you've got 20, do you care that you have 50? Mm. Right, right. You know, on a given blog yeah. post, like it gets meaningless after a while.
4: Yeah, uh, my approach has been, um, with a Akisma is, if I've sort of, if it flags something as spam that wasn't spam, but because it's limited to postbacks or, tr- or trackbacks, or pingbacks and trackbacks, I sort of don't care. Uh, you know, I'm I'm going to allow for yep. that margin of error so that I don't I don't spend my time, my valuable time sitting there going through the list and trying to find those uh, little needles in the haystack. The thing is, you know, with, uh, you know, some people will put a little Technorati uh, thing where, you know, you click on that and you can see how many posts uh, have linked to your post. It's not long before the, the you know, spam blogs or splogs t- uh, catch on to <laughs> that and start, uh gaming that system too if you think about it right it wouldn't be too hard for me to start linking to a bunch of blogs and throwing a little bit of relevant content there and then hope that i get picked up on your technorati uh link
2: yeah yeah all those things are ultimately exploitable and and we're backing into i think a very strong jeff atwood position which is that all of these sub sites that provide these additional services aren't necessarily a good thing. The that the community is the internet. Why are we allowing other entities to manage our communities for us?
4: Right, right.
2: Well, and, it I, and, has I, its... get, and I get that thrown at me by Atwood every time I accidentally invite him to LinkedIn.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there's there's pros and cons. Uh, you know, we could we could talk about that some more. I'm, I'm really curious about. The uh the code that you inherited from dot text you, was how was it was it well commented was it well formed did you uh did you like the way Scott put it together Scott Watermaze
3: <laughs> Wait now uh, uh, wait a second
2: before you t- even try and answer that question is there any chance that you would answer this question other than it was amazing <laughs> I mean <laughs> really um. Uh, Okay. <laughs> I go. think it's a fair I,
1: question.
4: I I I'll, I'll I'll be honest. Uh here's the thing. If I was to hand off my code to somebody who came in a year after the fact, they're going to find a lot of problems with it and they're going to complain about it, right? Because uh there's always the cases where you may compromise it's like, "Oh, I was rushed and I just wanted to get that feature out there." Things yeah. like that, right? As far as I know, it was mostly a one-man operation, um, if not, you know, with maybe occasional contributions. I don't really know the eg- exact history. And I've met Scott. He's he's a really smart guy, really uh, nice guy. And uh, I, I felt like overall, given the constraints that he was probably working under, he's built something. Uh, quite, dot text was in really good shape in terms of uh, at the time, like for example, GeeksWithBlogs.net was hosted on there, and I think yeah. they have, you know. Uh, A thousand blogs. Yeah. Uh, on an installation of dot text. Now they've recently upgraded to Subtext, and they're up to like something like fourteen hundred blogs. So, you know, my, you know, I'm just happy that I didn't, you know, trash the scalability of dot text, yeah. which to me seemed like it was, uh, it was one of the key, uh, you know, benefits of dot text was that it's really, really scalable, and that sort of seemed where the, the code seemed focused around the scalability. I mean, obviously, there are areas where I decided, oh, I would really like to clean this up or clean that up. Um, but for the most part, uh, once you get into there, it, it, it becomes pretty understandable.
3: Hey,
1: do you find that the horizontal scroll bar is the most annoying thing when you're trying to read that impossibly long line of code? Well, maybe a 19-inch LCD monitor would help. Telerik challenges you to explore their new reporting product and have a chance to give your workstation a facelift. A 19-inch NEC monitor could be yours if you answer a few easy multiple-choice questions about Telerik reporting. Just spend a few minutes and see how easily you can generate Windows, Web, and PDF reports. Play with the drag-and-drop data binding. Experiment with Telerik's acclaimed CSS-like customization of reporting items. The reporting tool is fast and compact and very easy to deploy with a mere X-copy. Even if you don't get top marks in the quiz, you can still be a winner. The modest score of seven correct answers out of 11 questions secures you a complimentary Telerik reporting developer license that you can use in your personal and professional projects. So go to Telerik.com and give it a try. It's fun, it's interesting, and it can get you a free license or a new monitor. I think maybe we have to have the 20th eponymous law of software development, which is uh, all software that is not your own can be improved, yeah, something exactly. like that.
4: Well, uh, all <laughs> software that is your own can be improved as well, but, yeah, I, it's, it's so something funny about because, her. you know, I've worked at so many places with very opinionated developers, and you show them any piece of code, and they'll say, well, that code is crap, you know? know? Yeah, well,
1: that's their job, right? Because they want to rewrite it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> You know it's the, all the ideas the only thing that's important there. Oh yeah, good idea. Let me rewrite that.
4: Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, and the other thing is like you get this benefit, right? I as a since I didn't write subtext from scratch, I forked that text. I get the benefit of saying anytime someone complains about the code, you know, whether it's true or not, I get to say, "Well, you know, that was a legacy" <laughs> We inherited that,
3: (laughs) right? Yeah, Yeah. that's
2: the nice thing about open source: is you could never, you never have to admit who made what piece of code, right? And 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 you're right. Nothing is well. This is that classic Auden quote about poetry, paraphrased: "No software is ever finished; only abandoned." (laughs) Right. (laughs) Exactly. Right. You didn't. You didn't get done. You just stopped.
4: (laughs) Right. Right. Well. You know, that's something I've thought about, too, with the with, with open source projects. At what point do you stop or does it never stop? Um, I mean, eventually, something better will come along where you, you, you look at it and you say, you know what, I'm wasting my time on this. So far, that hasn't happened yet, and, uh, you know, I hope it doesn't for a good while because uh, it's been a lot of fun working on this project.
1: Was .text a uh, uh, ASP.NET 1.1 when you got it? Yes. Okay. So did you do a bit of rewriting for the features in 2.0?
4: Uh, yes, so we upgraded it to 2.0 for uh, I think version 1.9, and uh, you know I was hoping to do 2.0 for 2.0, but um, some of the uh, f- some of the feature key features of ASP.NET 2.0 are, have been challenging to implement. For example, membership providers, because mm-hmm. we host multiple blogs in a single installation. All right each blog, you know, does each blog map to a membership application or does the, the whole installation map to a single membership application? Uh, so, you know, resolving questions like that were non-trivial. So I went down the road mm-hmm. of saying, well, let's implement, uh, you know, our own app membership provider that will treat each blog as its own membership, uh, you know, membership store.
3: Yeah.
1: What about coders.com? Let's uh, let's talk about that. That seems to be a quite an ambitious little project there—a <laughs> yep. search engine for all sorts of code. And it also reminds me of what is it? Planet Code was it planetcode.com? Planet Source Code? You remember Planet Source Code? I'm not familiar with that. Oh, okay, and uh, also uh, Hui Hung Lao has a uh, the guy who does uh, Remote Soft there. He's got a code search engine as well.
4: Wow. Oh. Yeah, the the ones I'm most familiar with as our competitors are Krugel, uh, with with a K R U G L E, and uh, <laughs> Google, you know, the eight hundred pound gorilla, Google, right? Yeah. So one of the things I'm not sure how all these other ones work, but the, one of the interesting methods that we take is that we actually go into the source control system and pull the code out and index it. So when you submit a project that's on SourceForge, for example, you would submit the subversion connection string, the URL, and we would go, um, pull that code down, and then index it, and depending on what language it's in, we'll do some semantic analysis.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: So for example, you can do a search for a method, def- you know, a method named blah, blah, blah by doing mdef colon blah, blah, blah.
3: Oh, wow.
1: Oh, yeah, I see right here example searches. You've got the search terms in uh, c- uh, CDEF for classes whose name contains, MDEF for methods whose name contains, and IDEF for interfaces whose name contains. Yep. Pretty cool.
4: Yeah, my favorite, it's funny because my favorite feature of coders.com is less the search and more the project browser. So if you type in subtext oh. in the search box and, and hit return, you get some search results. In the uh, in the search results, there are multiple links, and the one that says you know project subtext or just subtext uh, takes you to the project page. And and when the project page has a uh, tree on the left side where you can see all the different folders, and as you click through the folders, you can see a list of files. And when you click on a file, you get a nicely you know at least for C sharp you get a nice syntax highlighted uh, page showing the code. And it's faster for me than if I'm on a new machine and I and I'm working on something and I was like, Oh yeah, we did that in that uh you know, the subtext framework library. I need to find that code. It's faster for me to just go to coders.com and find it than it is for me to, you know, bust out Tortoise S V N and, and get the latest from our repository and yeah. and find it. I mean I, I think that's that nice. Obviously I'm looking I can go to Source for just view subversion pages. I I think they post everything on the web, but I like the syntax highlighting it and, and the quickness of the search.
1: I like it, too. I just brought up the project page, and in addition to that um, hierarchy, you've got some nice stats here, too, including, which is interesting, development cost. <laughs> how do you uh, how do you get that number, which is uh, almost half a million dollars for subtext? How do you get that?
4: Yeah, that that development cost, I would treat that as sort of like uh, you know, a fun, fun number, uh, and I would treat it with a grain of salt. Oh,
1: I see. This is what it would cost if we were paying for it.
4: Right. It's uh, based on the number of lines of code. I was just just
2: thinking that's a KLOC equation. Okay.
4: Yeah, it's effectively lines of code times uh, um, how many lines of code per hour times the uh, rate per hour. Right. So I think the default rate is, what, $50 an hour?
1: That's pretty cheap, actually.
4: Yeah. Well, it depends where you are, right? I guess so, Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so that, that cost is if you were writing from scratch, you know, what it might cost for that amount of, uh, man hours. Now, obviously if you're writing, writing in your own blog engine, I, I would hope that you would just steal the code from one of these, uh, licensed open source ones and then build off of there rather than start from scratch.
3: Hmm.
4: Which would save you, save you a bit of money. But it's a it's a fun number, and a lot of people complain about it. You know, all right, we get a lot of complaints like, "Oh, that's not realistic, this or that." Well, it's not intended to, to say that you could sell your open source project for that amount, right? Because, um, you know, the value of your project is not how many hours you put into it; it's the the value it brings to the people who want it.
1: And also, I, I like you. You have the ability to change the variables in that equation. The functions require the effort per K lock and the labor cost per month and then you can just get a different number so you know if you don't like that number <laughs> yeah, exactly. just make up a new one
3: you know
4: so it's a, when you're trying to sell your uh, open source project to some big company you know you inflate those numbers and uh you know make sure that you include all the markup cuz i think you can filter on uh markup or or code only i mean
3: yeah
1: boy that is a nice browser
4: yeah and so and then under that there's a little uh, bar graph of the the languages that are in use um I've, I've, it's mostly accurate although I think sometimes it interprets things as like there, it says Python and I'm pretty sure we don't have any Python code in our code base yet
1: <laughs> very cool so yeah i I really love, I'm starting to explore the subtext project here and it, it's really nice it's quick it's fast it's uh um it looks like it's using Ajax I guess to do postbacks and it's very for the cool. comments yep
3: yeah
4: I did a little experiment there with the update panel but uh, I need to Refactor that to use something a little more efficient. So I, it, it's strange. I found that uh, one person complained that the update panel for posting comments doesn't work when he's at work because he's behind a firewall. He can hit my site, but he can't post a comment. Uh, um, which is
2: wacky because it's all HTTP.
4: Yeah, yeah. I have no clue why that would that would happen.
2: <laughs> I don't think that's you. I think that's him.
4: Yeah. How
1: many? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, was it PEPCAC?
2: The yes, problem exists between keyboard and chair.
1: Okay. How many uh, projects are in are are indexed by Coders. dot com?
4: Uh, we index seven hundred thirty million lines of code. Uh, I'm not sure what the project count of that turns out to be. Uh, we are, you know attempt to index uh, SourceForge, uh, Codeplex, RubyForge, um, trying to think, NovellForge. Uh, uh, all the major ones and any, even many minor ones, when, when people tell us about a repository, we'll index it. One of the challenges there is, you know, finding the new projects. Uh, for example, SourceForge doesn't actually produce a, a feed of all their projects. So, you know, we rely a lot on user submissions and, and, you know, crawling around and, uh, trying, you know, trying to Stay within these companies' terms of services, so we can't just you know throw a bunch of bots on their site to index their site because we if we hit too many requests per second uh that's a problem so uh you know we try to work with a lot of these companies to uh, create a, a syndication format for their uh, open source for their open source projects um for example, codeplex I believe uh, um, provides an XML feed that lets us know when they have new projects so that we can go and quickly index them. So, theoretically, our CodePlex index should be fairly complete.
1: This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Developer Express. Developer Express, crafting first-class tools, frameworks, and controls for the .NET developer. Improve your experience online at www.devexpress.com.
2: It's an interesting problem that it's this you can't just go out scraping code from any old place. You've got to really look for it properly.
4: Right, because one thing we don't want to do is uh accidentally index proprietary code or non-open source code. Yeah, that
2: that that's got to be a huge risk for you that you don't want to you don't want to violate licenses essentially.
3: That's what exactly,
4: you're up against. Exactly, and It hasn't been much of a problem when somebody says, "Hey, look, you know, we don't want this code in our in in your index, you know, we, we comply. We say, okay, that's yeah, fine. Yeah, you just pull
2: it out. And yeah, I'm just surprised that we have as few issues around search engines indexing content as we have. <laughs> All things considered, it just goes to show how the Internet is not as U.S.-centric as you might be, that litigious place it is. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. So, Phil... There's certain measures. as uh, you, uh, you gotta you understand, I'm a newcomer to .NET Rocks. I only came on about show 100, so it's taken me a while to learn. Newcomer, you've
1: 30. done more shows than all of the other previous co-hosts combined.
2: That's over 160 shows. Yeah, well, so the, <laughs> there's a few things I've learned along the way about the nature of guests. And one of the <laughs> very important measures of a guest, when I know I have a troublemaker for a guest, <laughs> is when his friends see him on the list for being on .NET Rocks and immediately email me. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I hope you see where I'm going here. Yeah, laid on me. So I receive, and I'm going to call them out because you got to know who to kill. I got email from Rob Connery and from John Galloway. <laughs> okay. Within Great. minutes of each other, within less than a day of actually listing you on the site. Yeah, and that that interestingly Rob is enough, a troublemaker.
4: Before you say anything, else. oh, oh <laughs> without a
2: doubt, guaranteed. So, what I found interesting about comparing—I don't know that these guys actually spoke to each other uh, before they sent email. I don't think they did because their content overlaps. They say two things exactly the same. First, is they say you are the Paris Hilton of the .dot net world, and the second is they say, and that wasn't my idea. <laughs> so, I have two questions for you. Exactly. How are you, the Paris Hilton of the <laughs> .dotnet world? And who came up with that?
4: Yeah, that's a little Rob Connery uh, line, and uh, it, there's an obvious collusion <laughs> between those two. <laughs> I know Rob put John up to that because I don't. I'm sure John never called me that. Uh, I have no idea why he calls me the Paris Hilton. He, uh, Rob likes to likes to assign nicknames to people. So right. um, done
1: any jail time?
4: No, no jail time yet. Uh, uh, I, I think, yeah, I'm pretty enthusiastic about the technologies I use. So he likes to say uh, uh, you know, that uh, he, he imagines me saying that's hot to everything.
3: So.
1: <laughs> well, that's a relief because I thought it was going to be about your hair or something. You know, there's, there's something, something about, about your, your physical appearance could be worse. My uh, hair. <laughs> I, well, you know. That, that also seems to be a theme on .NET Rocks going way back, but we won't get into that now.
2: <laughs> well, it's uh, well, and it, and it's an interesting dynamic. What I realized when – I mean, I've, I've read those guys' blogs as well as yours, and it just suddenly occurs to me that yeah, this is a group of folks who are – they all the one common thread between them is this open source behavior. You, you're used to working with groups of people that are loosely coupled. They're not employed by you. They're really donating their time and effort uh, based on enthusiasm around a project. And that, I think, lends itself to a certain personality, you know, someone that can collaborate with others on, a, on very much a volunteer basis.
4: Right, much like Paris Hilton. <coughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, a lot of people... You- one of the great things about open source for me personally and blogging is just the introduction into this really large community of people who are really excited about the technology they work with, uh, no matter what those technologies may be, and uh, are really interested in sharing and, and contributing to the, the general community and each other. Uh, you know, like a lot of people wondered, uh, you know, there's going to be a lot of competition between you and DOSBlog. Blog? And, and instead, you know, I look at it and say, no, we're sharing code. You know, I stole some code from them. I mean, their licenses allow for it, right? Right. So I took some code from them. I gave them some code. And, uh, you know, we're trying to, uh, as my, uh, former, uh, fr- friend Micah says, uh, rising tide lifts all boats. So, right. you know, that's mm. what we're working at here is trying to r- raise that tide up so that everybody benefits. Uh, um, You know, uh, the other day, you know that, oh, the the uh, 19 laws, the uh, 19 eponymous laws post, right? The other day, a buddy of mine who's a non-technical person but subscribes to my feed nonetheless, saw a post on uh, Boing Boing, uh, which is, you know, a really huge blog, and it called the Software Laws. And he's like, oh, and he clicked on it, and it was someone else who had just basically written up a list of software laws and had linked to me saying, oh, you know, this was inspired by Phil's post, and he got really upset, <laughs> and he calls me up and he says, Are you going to stand for that? Are you going to you know, just let that go? This guy just totally ripped you off. And I was like, you know, I said to my friend, Look, go to the bottom of my my blog. What do you see there? It says uh, Creative Commons. Basically, all the content in my blog is licensed under the Creative Commons, which means that you can go ahead and republish it if you want. I mean, my hope is that you do something interesting with it. You remix it. You... You know right. you you put it in your own words, but you can you can take that content, and repost it anywhere as long as you attribute me properly. That's all I ask yeah, that's so, all you know the I goal there me. is that uh you know it, it kind of fits with that whole open source mentality is that you know everybody benefits uh, when we're producing this content and this code that that people can use in their own projects and share with each other and and, and it's benefited me tremendously in the sense that. I've found great people to hire. I mean, there's no better way to hire someone than to see what kind of contributions they've made to open source because you're seeing their actual code and you're seeing how they interact with other people. Uh, not to mention, like, I recently had, you know, out of the blue, I found some guy in Texas and, you know, asked him to do me a, uh, do a blog design for me, for which I paid him. And so uh, not too long after that design went up on my site, he's he's in Redmond this week, or in Seattle, I should say, uh, interviewing at some company for uh a consulting company for a design position that would involve some c sharp work and he was a formerly a job- or he's currently a java developer as far as I know so I found that to be uh uh quite interesting
1: well that just because he um he did a a net blog design that he's a c sharp guy or
4: no no uh, that uh you know doing it he doing a design for my blog helped uh, get him you know get him noticed to go uh, Oh going. by the
3: right people yeah yeah
2: it's interesting about evaluating employees or you know finding potential employees i've often used the line uh, give me a resume and a sample of your favorite piece of code but what better piece of code than something that's actually in operation in an open source project i wonder how many people are motivated by that to, to participate in an open source project because it is such a good resume item. It is such a good piece to say, look, this is the work I, you want to see the work I've done? Go look over here. Just like this guy who did your skin. You want to see the work I've done? Go to this blog site and take right. a look at it. That it looks like that because of me. And, you know, that's, that's a fairly important thing to say. It's, it's very much a display of your work. So definitely a strength. I, I find it fascinating. You know, most mechanics at the end of the day, Go home and they don't work on cars. What is it about software developers that our hobbies are also developing software? I, I, well, I, th- I think that coders that,
1: especially the ones that listen to our show, they love to write code. It's more like a need than, uh, than a job. In fact, probably, you know, what they really want to be writing is not what they're writing at their job. You know, it's a fun process. I mean, that look, that's why I got into it. It was fun.
4: Well, and I think in part is the nature of software, right? You're working really with pure thought matter. You know, it's ephemeral. Uh, you know, you only have so many car, so many problems with your car you can fix. And so when you get home, you know, I assume the mechanic has a really well-running car. So right. There's not a whole lot he can you know, do to it. But, uh, you know, when you get home from your job in the software, and, you know, for a lot of people, they're unhappy with the, the type of work they're doing. And Because, you know, it's impossible to get a real wide range of exposure at work uh, for many people. So you get home and you, you, you pick some open source project that has doing something really interesting to you. And, and you have the ability to, with just pure power of your mind, shape the code and, and do interesting things and make your computer, you know, dance.
1: Yeah, control. We like control. It's all about control. Isn't it? Yeah. Am I we're, right we're, or am
4: I we're right? We're all uh, obsessive-compulsive anal control freaks. Absolutely. Yeah, the mo-
2: the, all The best we can hope for is that we've harnessed our obsessive-compulsive natures for the forces of good.
4: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So rather than blowing up a Starbucks, we write code. <laughs> there you go.
1: I've said this before. I also think that, for guys anyway, this is the closest we can get to creating another life. You know, women can do that. And uh, we just sort of have a... Cursory involvement in that process, but this is like, hey, you know, we can actually make a little mind, you know. Uh, you so, probably you haven't know, thought about that that much, but <laughs> that uh, the thought comes to my, cross my mind every once in a while.
4: Yeah, uh, that's a that's a new one for me. I mean, I just had a son. You like
1: it, though, don't you? You do like it.
4: Yeah, it's just, uh, you know, I don't have to change <laughs> the diapers of my code. Ah, uh, Yeah, it's a <laughs> great. He doesn't keep me up at two. Well, I don't know. No. You (laughs) know, uh, when you have, like, bugs in your code and you get paged (laughs) at 2 a.m., that's not unlike having your son keeping you up with his crying. That's right.
2: Yeah. It's pretty close. And let's face it, there's definitely some code that needs diapers.
1: Yep. When it sticks its finger in the socket, you're like, oh, I got to rewrite
2: that.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And, and, you know, sometimes with clients, there's a lot of crying and, and whining,
2: so... Yeah. But if I find if I sit down very close to my children's ceremony right in the end and say, you definitely need some debugging, <laughs> you know? I don't understand why it is you can't figure out how to put a helmet on before you ride your bike, but, you know, there's got to be a patch here we can make to fix that. <laughs> yeah, All it's right. hard
4: to instrument your kids and get diagnostic information out of them, right? <laughs> when uh, my son cries and, and uh, you know, I've got a few black box testing I can do to figure out, is it, you know, why is he crying? <laughs>
3: <laughs>
1: Okay, uh, you've recently written some stuff on your blog about Microsoft's open source portal.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, I'd like to sort of visit that opinion. It's at shrinkster.com slash RE1 is the post. And the the, the website, microsoft.com slash open source is at shrinkster.com slash RE0. Tell us a little bit about um, about that post and about your thoughts around this site. Well, let's start with the site. What's the site all about?
4: Oh, uh, so the the portal site? Yeah. Well, this looks to be that Microsoft is Microsoft is kind of steadily moving towards really understanding. Well, we hope understanding and embracing open source. Um, and this site appears to me to be sort of their uh, acknowledgement that they that open, they need to deal with open source. That uh, that they are supporting in some ways open source. Um, It aggregates uh, their various open-source properties into one location. This is pretty much their homepage for uh, what they're doing in the open-source arena. So you have links to Port 25, which is the open-source software lab run by uh, Sam Ramji, And you also have, uh, I believe you have links to uh, CodePlex, their uh, open-source project hosting site. Hmm. So this is kind of a, and, you know, if you look at the, the broader open source community, this is obviously one of these areas where there's a lot of skepticism, uh, you know, uh, among the crowd that's always been skeptical of
1: Microsoft, right? But well, yeah. uh, in
4: some ways for good reason.
1: Yeah, well, we all know that they're a business and they're not going to embrace anything if they feel it's a threat to their business.
4: Exactly. It's just the
1: way business works.
4: Right. But what you have here is, uh, there's been a bit, there's sort of a schizophrenic nature to Microsoft, right? You know, you often hear the quote that they're not a, um, mono culture, right? So you have the one, on the one hand, you know, uh, uh, Steve Ballmer or, or, or whatnot saying that, uh, open source is the biggest threat to Microsoft. Um, and, and mm-hmm. the Microsoft lawyers wielding, uh, software patents and threatening, you know, open source with software patents. And then on the other hand, you have here, uh, this, you know, uh I want to participate with open source and Microsoft. This is the tagline up there, right? I want to participate partner grow and learn with open source and Microsoft. Yeah. So how do you how do you reconcile these two things? Either open source is the biggest threat to Microsoft or open source is the way that Microsoft is going to stay relevant and build out their business in a yeah, in, in this new world of software. Now, mm. you you can probably guess where I stand on that side of the question, but uh, uh I think what's happening here is that there are a lot of factions within Microsoft that realize that if they don't get on board with open source, that Microsoft, uh, you know, 10, 20 years down the road is going to become irrelevant. And, uh, and that open source is a way to continue to grow their business. That it's not a, uh, you know, it's not a binary equation here, right? So yeah. it, they don't have to fight all open source. They don't have to, uh, embrace you know turn their entire stack into open source right there is some some ground here for them to to work together with the open source communities to support open source um you know on their platform as well, as well as other platforms and 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 do it in such a way that it continues to grow their business
1: yeah i can see that they you know developers love open source obviously and uh, developers are are have really been the success of Microsoft, the development community, you know embracing the development technology. Without applications, you don't have an operating system market and exactly. uh,
3: so but
2: micro I mean Microsoft basically invented the concept of paying for software before right. Microsoft, mm, you right. all the companies. That that made software also made the hardware. They gave the software away so you'd buy their hardware. They right. were IBM and Hewlett Packard and companies like that. Microsoft came along and said, "Hey, you know, we don't make hardware. We'll make software." And so, you know, you we were talk about the legacy of Microsoft. Talk right. about the end user license agreement. Mm. And right. the concept of licensing software in general, this whole idea that I don't own my software anyway, I only buy a license to use it mm-hmm. is is all a microsoft construct so you're you really are poking at the fundamentals of what the company was founded on when you talk about changing that
4: well right, but uh you know the software industry moves really fast, right the technology industry as a whole, and you know what Microsoft doesn't want to do is adhere too much to its legacy so that it ignores new emerging markets that uh, are opening up and and shifts in the direction of the the winds of technology, so to speak. Uh, For example, you know, how long did it take for them to realize that browsers and the web is the the next big thing? Uh, You know, they were a little late to the game, and in many ways they're still catching up. And uh, it's sort of, you know, sticking to, you know, sticking only to their legacy or trying to adhere too much to that legacy that can, um, that can cause them to be close to uh, potential new, you know, sources of business or, or just the way that, you know, the industry is heading as a whole. I mean, w- the industry is going to go where it's going to go. And, uh, you know, Microsoft is a big player and can influence that to some degree. But, you know, it's, it's a rock and a river.
1: The way I look at it is they they invent the development technologies and then they sort of have to learn from the development community about how to develop software. And I say that, you know, half tongue in cheek, but it's really true. I mean, learning about how software is developed has been uh, very important. Um, for Microsoft, and you know, they're not the only people who write software in the world.
3: So right.
1: you know, so the, the the things that we've seen about continuous integration—that's just coming out in in uh, the next version of Team System. So you know, the stuff happens out in the real world a long time before a product comes out of Microsoft. And it, you know, to their to their benefit, they're adapting Agile internally, and they're doing the stuff that uh, that's going on in the real world it just takes them more time to do that because they're big and they move slowly right. or at least that's the way it seems to be on the outside I mean there are a lot of a lot of teams internally and Richard will tell you who are going faster than uh, you know the rest of the company
4: well yeah I mean I've been really pleased to see all the changes come out of Microsoft you know I want to say up front that I'm a fan of Microsoft uh, you know I pretty critical but you know the opposite of of uh, love isn 't hate it 's indifference, right, so you know yeah. i 'm not indifferent to them, and you know i 'm critical because i I want to see them improve because I really like the the tools that they provide for the platform, and it's it 's a fun development environment, so you know but you know with the, the for example, I think the one of the first big changes was how blogging took off at Microsoft I mean as far as i know they 're probably yeah. they're, the 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 one large software company that most took advantage of blogs and uh I agree. in a good good way right and it, channel it,
3: 9
1: too is an ex- you know say what you want about it it's an extreme window into what's going on in, in the
2: little in the little rooms all over microsoft
4: <laughs> right channel 9 is a great example of that
2: Well, I do think you're looking at the obsessive compulsive nature of Microsoft, which is, you know, when (laughs) Bill said the Internet is the way, go that way. And that is actually the strength of Microsoft is that there is a leader. And when he says go that way, everybody goes. Yeah. And so, boom, you know, Internet Explorer, all of those tools, many of them awful, but many of them great. Right. Right. I don't love front page, but you cannot deny front pages impact on the Internet. Right. Right. You know, it's all over the place. But then the, uh, so the other side of this is when they said, and I, and I honestly get the sense that this is against Bill's will, that they said, <laughs> we're going to let the world see inside the company, you're allowed to blog. They did. Yeah. Yeah.
4: You've got to wonder how much, you know, you know, where, where, what Bill thinks of that actually, right? You know, of, of all this, I mean, he obviously approves it to some level because he allowed, uh, or was it he or bomber who was interviewed by Scoble on Channel 9?
2: So, you know, they know what's going on on some level. I, but, I, I think they know what they're going on. They may not approve, but they admit they're outnumbered. I mean, just the same way that you <laughs> changed your software in a way you didn't want to do because that's what the people wanted. I think that's what the company wanted. And ultimately, you know, he gave way. And I the, the last time... And Carl, you were there last time we saw Bill in person. Yeah, which w- was at the MVP Summit, mm-hmm. and the topic came up, and and. Bill Gates' body language is very, very obvious. When he likes what he's talking about, he's very animated. Very his excited. arms are moving, <laughs> and he's all but jumping out of his seat. And when the topic of the whole blogging and things came up, his arms were crossed. He was looking down. I mean, he doesn't like the topic. Yeah. I don't know what his actual position is on it, but there's not a lot of love there. <laughs> well, and he doesn't say you. much
1: about it, and that probably is telling well, right there. Well, it's
4: ironic because it may have been one of the best things that happened to Microsoft in a long time. I, I mean, totally yeah. agree.
1: Agree. I think it saved the company, and he might even he might even agree agree with you. Um, Bill might even agree with you. It just doesn't mean that you know he wants his warts exposed,
3: <laughs> <laughs> right? right. Well, I, right.
2: Yeah, it doesn't mean he has to be happy about it either. Exactly. Because obviously, right. there's something wrong with the world that that
3: works.
1: <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh, gentlemen, this has been an incredibly fun hour for me and I'm sure for you, too, and the listeners out there. Uh, Phil Hack, you have any last-minute words uh, or anything you want to plug or anything cool that's on your mind recently that you want to just end with here?
4: Uh, Well, uh, in the uh, nature of plugging, um, I've been working on a book with, uh, you know, one of the guys you mentioned, John Galloway, uh, Jeff Atwood, and K. Scott Allen uh, for SitePoint. It's called ASP.NET Problems and Solutions. It's not out yet, but... uh, uh, when it does, you know, be sure to buy five, six copies for all your friends.
3: And awesome. your mother.
4: <laughs> and your mother,
3: right? <laughs> and your grandmother.
4: We, we wrote this targeting your mother, and uh, she's going to really enjoy it.
1: Uh, I'll call her and tell her right now, actually. <laughs> <laughs> She'll go, my printer won't print! <laughs> it's the cigars.
4: I, I have enough troubles with technology myself, so I understand. <laughs>
1: All right, Phil Hack, thank you very much for joining us on this hour. And we'll see you next time on.NET ROCKS..NET ROCKS is the... the... well, yeah. recorded so no, mano- and produced by PWOP Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post production, Go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com